Some Terms of Thought in Modern Philosophy, Essay Number Two, Fifty Years of British Idealism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Some Terms of Thought in Modern Philosophy, Five Essays by George Santayana. Essay Number Two. Fifty Years of British Idealism Reflections on the Republication of Bradley's Ethical Studies After fifty years, an old milestone in the path of philosophy, Bradley's Ethical Studies has been set up again as if to mark the distance which English opinion has traversed in the interval. It has passed from insular dogmatism to universal bewilderment and a chief agent in the change has been Bradley himself, with his scornful and delicate intellect, his wit, his candor, his persistence, and the baffling futility of his conclusions. In this early book we see him coming forth like a young David against every clumsy champion of utilitarianism, hedonism, positivism, or empiricism, and how smooth and polished were the little stones in his sling, how fatally they would have lodged in the forehead of that composite monster if only it had had a forehead. Some of them might even have done murderous execution in Bradley's own camp. For instance, this pebble cast playfully at the metaphysical idol called Law. Quote, it is always wet, on half-holidays because of the law of raininess. But sometimes it is not wet because of the supplementary law of sunshine. End quote. Bradley and his friends achieved a notable victory in the academic field. Philosophic authority and influence passed largely into their hands in all English-speaking universities. But it was not exactly from these seats of learning that naturalism and utilitarianism needed to be dislodged like the corresponding radicalisms of our day. These doctrines prevailed rather in certain political and intellectual circles outside, consciously revolutionary and often half-educated, and I am afraid that the braggart Goliaths of today need chastening at least as much as those of fifty years ago. In a country officially Christian, and especially in Oxford, it is natural and fitting that academic authority should belong to orthodox tradition, theological, platonic, and Aristotelian. Bradley, save for a few learned quotations, strangely ignored this orthodoxy entrenched behind his back. In contrast with it, he was himself a heretic, with first principles devastating every settled belief, and it was really his venerable silent partner at home that his victories superseded, at least in appearance and for a season. David did not slay Goliath, but he dethroned Saul. Saul was indeed already under a cloud, and all in David's heart was not unkindness in that direction. Bradley might almost be called an unbelieving Newman, time, especially, seems to have brought his suffering and refined spirit into greater sympathy with ancient sanctities. Originally, for instance, venting the hearty Protestant sentiment that only the Christianity of laymen is sound, he had written, 
quote, I am happy to say that religay has no English equivalent, end quote. But a later note says, quote, This is not true except of modern English only, and in any case it won't do, and was wrong, and due to ignorance. However secluded the religious life, it may be practical indirectly, if, through the utility of the spiritual body, it can be taken as vicarious. End quote. The if here saves the principle that all values must be social, and that the social organism is the sole moral reality. Yet how near this bubble comes to being pricked! We seem clearly to feel that the question is not whether spiritual life subserves animal society, but whether animal society ever is stirred and hollowed into spiritual life. All this, however, in that age of progress, was regarded as obsolete. There was no longer to be any spirit except the spirit of the times. True, the ritualists might be striving to revive the latent energies of religious devotion, with some dubious help from aestheticism, but against the rising tide of mechanical progress and romantic anarchy, and against the mania for rewriting history, traditional philosophy then seemed helpless and afraid to defend itself. It is only now beginning to recover its intellectual courage. For the moment, speculative radicals saw light in a different quarter. German idealism was nothing if not self-confident. It was relatively new, it was encyclopedic in its display of knowledge, which it could manipulate dialectically with dazzling, if not stable, results. It was Protestant in temper and autonomous in principle, and altogether it seemed a sovereign and providential means of suddenly turning the tables on the threatened naturalism, by developing romantic intuition from within, and packing all knowledge into one picture, the universe might be shown to be, like intuition itself, thoroughly spiritual, personal, and subjective. The fundamental axiom of the new logic was that the only possible reality was consciousness. Quote, People find, writes Bradley, a subject and an object correlated in consciousness. To go out of that unity is for us literally to go out of our minds. When mind is made only a part of the whole, there is a question which must be answered. If about any matter we know nothing whatsoever, can we say anything about it? Can we even say that it is? And if it is not in consciousness, how can we know it? And conversely, if we know it, it cannot be not mind. Bradley challenged his contemporaries to refute this argument, and not being able to do so, many of them felt constrained to accept it, perhaps not without grave misgivings. For was it not always a rooted conviction of the British mind that knowledge brings material power, and that any figments of consciousness, in religion, for instance, not bringing material power, are dangerous bewitchments and not properly knowledge? Yet it is no less characteristic of the British mind to yield occasionally, up to a certain point, to some such enthusiastic fancy, provided that its incompatibility with honest action may be denied or ignored. So in this case, British idealists, in the act of defining knowledge idealistically as the presence to consciousness of its own phenomena, never really cease to assume transcendent knowledge of a self-existing world, social 
and psychological, if not material, and they continued scrupulously to readjust their ideas to those dark facts, often more faithfully than the avowed positivists or scientific psychologists. What could ethics properly be to a philosopher who, on principle, might not trespass beyond the limits of consciousness? Only ethical sentiment. Bradley was satisfied to appeal to the moral consciousness of his day, without seeking to transform it. The most intentionally eloquent passage in his book describes war fever, unifying and carrying away a whole people that was the summit of moral consciousness and of mystic virtue. His aim, even in ethics, was avowedly to describe that which exists, to describe moral experience without proposing a different form for it. A man must be a man of his own time or nothing. To set up to be better than the world was the beginning of immorality, and virtue lay in accepting one's station and its duties. The moralist should fill his mind with a concrete picture of the task and standards of his age and nation, and should graft his own ideals upon that tree. This need not prevent moral consciousness from including a decided esteem for non-political excellences like health, beauty, or intelligence, which are not ordinarily called virtues by modern moralists. Yet they are undeniably good, better, perhaps, than any painful and laborious dutifulness, so that the strictly moral consciousness might run over and presently lose itself in something higher. Indeed, even health, beauty, and intelligence, which seemed at first so clearly good, might lose their sharpness on a wider view. In the panorama that would ultimately fill the mind, these so-called goods and virtues could not be conceived without their complementary vices and evils. Thus all moral consciousness, and even all vital preference, might ultimately be superseded, they might appear to have belonged to a partial and a rather low stage in the self-development of consciousness. With this disillusion of his moral judgments always in prospect, why should Bradley, or any idealist, have pursued ethical studies at all? Since all phases of life were equally necessary to enrich an infinite consciousness, which must know both good and evil, in order to merge and to transcend them, he could hardly nurse any intense enthusiasm for a different complexion to be given to the lives of men. His moral passion, for he had it, caustic and burning clear, was purely intellectual. It was shame that in England moral consciousness should have been expressed in systems dialectically so primitive as those of the positivists and utilitarians. He acknowledged, somewhat superciliously, that their hearts were in the right place, yet if we are to have ethics at all, were not their thoughts in the right place also? They were concerned not with analysis of the moral consciousness, but with the conduct of affairs and reform of institutions. The spectacle of human wretchedness profoundly moved them, their minds were bent on transforming society, so that a man's station and its duties might cease to be what a decayed feudal organization and an inhuman industrialism had made of them. 
they revolted against the miserable condition of the masses of mankind and against the miserable consolations which official religion or a philosophy like bradley's offered them in their misery the utilitarians were at least intent on existence and on the course of events they wished to transform institutions to fit human nature better and to educate human nature by those new institutions so that it might better realize its latent capacities these are matters which a man may modify by his acts and they are therefore the proper concern of the moralists were they much to blame if they neglected to define pleasure or happiness and used catchwords dialectically vague to indicate a direction of effort politically quite unmistakable doubtless their political action like their philosophical nomenclature was revolutionary and relied too much on wayward feelings ignorant of their own causes revolution no less than tradition is but a casual and clumsy expression of human nature in contact with circumstances yet pain and pleasure and spontaneous hopes however foolish are directed expressions of that contact and speak for the soul whereas a man's station and its duties are purely conventional and may altogether misrepresent his native capacities the protest of human nature against the world and its oppressions is the strong side of every rebellion it was the moral side of utilitarianism and of the rebellion against irrational morality unfortunately the english reformers were themselves idealists of a sort entangled in the vehicles of perception and talking about sensations and ideas pleasures and pains as if these had been the elements of human nature or even of nature at large and only the most meagre of verbal systems and the most artificial can be constructed out of such materials moreover they spoke much of pleasure and happiness and hardly at all of misery and pain whereas it would have been wiser and truer to their real inspiration to have laid all the emphasis on evils to be abated leaving the good to shape itself in freedom suffering is the instant and obvious sign of some outrage done to human nature without this natural recoil actual or imminent no morality could have any sanction and no precept could be imperative what silliness to command me to pursue pleasure or to avoid it if in any case everything would be well save for some shadow of dire repentance looming in the distance i am deeply free to walk as i will the choice of pleasure for a principle of morals was particularly unfortunate in the british utilitarians it lent them an air of frivolity absurdly contrary to their true character pleasure might have been a fit enough word in the mouth of aristippus a semi-oriental untouched by the least sense of responsibility or even on the lips of humanists in the eighteenth century who however sordid their lives may sometimes have been could still move in imagination to the music of mozart in the landscape of vatru or fragror but in the land and age of dickens the moral idea was not so much pleasure as kindness this tenderer word not only expresses better the motive at work 
but it points to the distressing presence of misery in the world to make natural kindness laborious and earnest and turn it into a legislative system bradley's hostility to pleasure was not fanatical one station and its duties might have their agreeable side Quote, it is probably good for you he tells us to have say not less than two glasses of wine after dinner six on ordinary occasions is perhaps too many but as to three or four they are neither one way nor the other End quote. if the voluptuary was condemned it was for the commonplace reason that such a hedonist too might invoke that a life of pleasure soon pales and becomes unpleasant bradley's objection to pleasure was merely speculative he found it too abstract to call a pleasure when actually felt an abstraction is an exquisite absurdity but pleasure in its absolute essence is certainly simple and indefinable if instead of enjoying it on the wing and as an earnest of the soul's momentary harmony we attempt to arrest and observe it we find it strangely dumb we are not informed by it concerning its occasion nor carried from it by any logical implications to the natural object in which it might be found a pure hedonist ought therefore to be rather relieved if all images lapsed from his consciousness and he could luxuriate in sheer pleasure dark and overwhelming true such bliss would be rather inhuman and of the sort which we rashly assign to the oyster but why should a radical and intrepid philosopher be ashamed of that the condition of bradley's absolute feeling in which all distinctions are transcendent and merged seems to be something of that kind but there would be a strange irony in attributing this mystical and rapturous ideal to such ponderous worthies as mill and spencer whose minds were nothing if not anxious perturbed instrumental and full of respect for variegated facts and who were probably incapable of tasting pure pleasure at all but if pleasure in its pure essence might really be the highest good for a mystic who should be lost in it it would be no guide to a moralist wishing to control events and to distribute particular pleasures or series of pleasures as richly as possible in the world for this purpose he would need to understand human nature and its variable functions in which different persons and peoples may find their sincere pleasures and this knowledge would first lend to his general love of pleasure any point of application in the governance of life or in benevolent legislation some concrete image of a happy human would take the place of the futile truism that pleasure is good and pain evil this is of course what utilitarian moralists meant to do and actually did in so far as their human sympathies extended which was not to the highest things but it was not what they said and bradley had a clear advantage over them in the war of words a pleasure is not a program it exists here and not there for me and no one else once and never again when past it leaves the will as empty and as devoid of allegiance as if it had never existed pleasure is sand though it have the color of gold but this is evidently true of all existence each living moment 
each dead man, each cycle of the universe, leaves nothing behind it but a void which perhaps something kindred may refill. A Hegel, after identifying himself for a moment with the absolute idea, is in his essence no less subject to sleepiness, irritation, and death than if he had been modestly satisfied with the joys of an oyster. But it is only their common form, or their common worship, that can give the quick moments of life any mutual relevance or sympathy, and existence would not come at all within sight of a good, either momentarily or final, if it were not inwardly directed upon realizing some definite essence. For the rest, this essence may be as simple as you will. If the nature directed upon it is unified and simple, it would be merely intellectual snobbery to condemn pleasure because it has not so many subdivisions in it as an encyclopedia of the sciences. For the moralist pleasure and pain may even be the better guides, because they express more directly and boldly the instinctive direction of animal life, and thereby mark more clearly the genuine difference between good and evil. We may well say with Bradley that the good is self-realization, but what is the self? Certainly not the feeling or consciousness of the moment, nor the life of the world, nor pure spirit. The self that can systematically distinguish good from evil is an animal soul, it grows from a seed, its potentiality is definite and its fate precarious, and in man it requires society to rear it and tradition to educate it. The good is accordingly social, in so far as the soul demands society, but it is the nature of the individual that determines the kind and degree of sociability that is good for him, and draws the line between society that is a benefit and society that is a nuisance. To subordinate the soul fundamentally to society, or the individual to the state, is sheer barbarism. The Greeks, sometimes invoked to support this form of idolatry, were never guilty of it. On the contrary, their lawgivers were always reforming and planning the state so that the soul might be perfect in it. Discipline is a help to the spirit, but even social relations when like love, friendship, or sport, they are spontaneous and good in themselves, retire as far as possible from the pressure of the world, and build their paradise apart, simple, and hidden in the wilderness. While all the ultimate hopes and assurances of the spirit escape altogether into the silent society of nature, of truth, of essence, far from those fatuous worldly conventions which hardly make up for their tyranny, by their instability for the prevalent moral fashion, is always growing old, and human nature is always becoming young again. World worship is the expedient of those who, having lost the soul that is in them, look for it in things external, where there is no soul, and by a curious recoil it is also the expedient of those who seek their lost soul in actual consciousness where it also is not. For sensations and ideas are not the soul, but only passing and partial products of its profound animal life. Moral consciousness, in particular, would never have arisen and would be gratuitous, save for the ferocious bias of a natural living creature defending itself against its thousand enemies. 
nor would knowledge in its turn be knowledge if it were merely intuition of essence, such as the sensualist, the poet, or the dialectician may rest in. If the imagery of logic or passion ever comes to convey knowledge, it does so by virtue of a concomitant physical adjustment to external things, for the nerve of real or transcendent knowledge is the notice which one part of the world may take of another part, and it is this momentous cognizance, no matter what intangible feelings may supply terms for its prosody, that enlarges the mind to some practical purpose and informs it about the world. Consciousness then ceases to be passive sense or idle ideation and becomes belief and intelligence. Then the essences which form the content of consciousness may be vivified and trippingly run over like the syllables of a familiar word. In the active recognition of things and people and of all the ominous or pliable forces of nature, for essences being eternal and non-existent in themselves, cannot come to consciousness by their own initiative, but only as occasion and the subtle movements of the soul may evoke their forms, so that the fact that they are given to consciousness has a natural status and setting in the material world, and is part of the same natural event as the movement of the soul and body which support that consciousness. There is therefore no need of refuting idealism, which is an honest examination of conscious in a reflective mind. Refutations and proofs depend on pregnant meanings assigned to terms, meanings first rendered explicit and unambiguous by those very proofs or refutations. On any different acceptation of those terms, these proofs and refutations fall to the ground, and it remains a question for good sense, not for logic at all, how far the terms in either case describe anything extant. If, by knowledge, we understand intuition of essences, idealism follows, but it follows only in respect to essences given in intuition. Nothing follows concerning the seat, origin, conditions, or symptomatic value of such intuition, nor even that such intuition ever actually occurs. Idealism, therefore, without being refuted, may be hemmed in and humanized by natural knowledge about it and about its place in human speculation. The most recalcitrant materialist, like myself, might see its plausibility during a somewhat adolescent phase of self-consciousness. Consciousness itself he might accept and relish as the natural spiritual resonance of action and passion, recognizing it in its proud isolation and specious autonomy, like the mountain republics of Andorra and San Marino. German idealism is a mighty pose, an attitude always possible to a self-conscious and reflective being, but it is hardly a system, since it contradicts beliefs which in action are inevitable. It may therefore be readily swallowed, but it can never be digested. Neither of its two ingredients, romantic skepticism and romantic superstition, agrees particularly with the British stomach. Not romantic skepticism, for in England an instructive distrust of too much clearness and logic, 
a difficulty in drawing all the consequences of any principle, soon gave to this most radical of philosophies a prim and religious air. Its purity was alloyed with all sorts of conventions, so much so that we find British Helgians often deeply engaged in psychology, cosmology, or religion, as if they took their idealism for a kind of physics, and wished merely to reinterpret the facts of nature in an edifying way, without uprooting them from their natural places. This has been made easier by giving idealism an objective, non-psychological turn. Events, and especially feelings and ideas, will then be swallowed up by the essences which they display. Thus, Bradley maintained that two thoughts, no matter how remote from each other in time or space, were identically the same, and not merely similar, if only they contemplated the same idea. Mind itself ceased in this way to mean a series of existing feelings, and was identified with intelligence, and intelligence in its turn was identified with the idea, or logos, which might be the ultimate theme of intelligence. There could be only one mind, so conceived, since there could be only one total system in the universe visible to omniscience. As to romantic skepticism, we may see by contrast what it would be, when left to itself, if we consider those lucid Italians who have taken up their idealism late and with open eyes. In Croce and Gentili, the transcendental attitude is kept pure. For them there is really no universe save spirit creating its experience, and if we ask whence or on what principle occasions arise for all this compulsory fiction, we are reminded that this question, with any answer which spirit might invent for it, belongs not to philosophy, but to some special science, like physiology itself. Of course, only a particular product of creative thought. Thus, the more impetuously the inquisitive squirrel would rush from his cage, the faster and faster he causes the cage to whirl about his ears. He has not the remotest chance of reaching his imaginary bait, God, nature, or truth. For to seek such things is to presuppose them, and to presuppose anything, if spirit be absolute, is to invent it. Even those philosophies of history which the idealist may for some secret reason be impelled to construct would be superstitions according to his own principles, if he took them for more than poetic fictions of the historian. So that in the study of history, as in every other study, all the diligence and sober learning which the philosopher may possess are non-philosophical since they presuppose independent events and material documents. This perfect idealism turns out to be pure literary sport, like lyric poetry, in which no truth is conveyed save the miscellaneous truths taken over from common sense or the special sciences, and the gay spirit, supposed to be living and shining of its own sweet will, can find nothing to live or shine upon save the common natural world. Such at least would be the case if romantic superstition did not supervene demanding that the spirit should impose some arbitrary rhythm or destiny on the world which it creates. 
but this side of idealism has been cultivated chiefly by the intrepid germans some of them like spengler and keisling still thrive and grow famous on it without a blush the modest english in these matters take shelter under the wing of science speculatively extended or traditional religious prudently rationalized the scope of the spirit like its psychological distribution is conceived realistically it might also prove an enthusiasm for british idealism to lose itself in the new metaphysics of nature which the mathematicians are evolving and since this metaphysics though materialistic in effect is more subtle and abstruse than popular materialism british idealism might perhaps be said to survive in it having now passed victoriously into its opposite and being merged in something higher. End of essay number two.